Good morning, Senior Pastor. Good to be with you good again. Mo- oh, good morning. Uh, we are going to be looking at uh, a topic that I think resonates throughout the entire world. The Messiah comes. Um, and it's kind of twofold. The Messiah came and the Messiah will come. And so yeah. we're going to try and tackle uh, those two um, elements of Scripture, um, speaking about Jesus' birth and childhood, and we'll find that in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 24, and uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52. We're also going to be looking at Jesus' earthly ministry, and we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 3, verses 21 through 22, Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 21, uh, verses 31 through 37, and Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. And then we're going to kind of wrap it up with Jesus' death and resurrection, which is probably, if not the most significant um, of this lesson. And we're going to be um, uh, looking at John chapter 19, verses 16 through 18, verses 28 through 42, um, John chapter 20, verses 1, and 11, verses, verses 11 through 22. So we have quite a bit of grounds to cover this morning. And uh, we know that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to save us from sin. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to save us from sin. It actually goes right back to John 3.16. You know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal and everlasting life. Um, Matthew chapter 1, verse 23 says, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us, God with us. Now, somewhere between 4 and 1 BC, numerous Old Testament prophecies found their fulfillment in the birth of one Jewish child in Bethlehem, a child born of a virgin. The first of such prophecies springs from Genesis chapter 3, verses verse 15, which says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. The last prophetic utterance probably occurs in Malachi 3, verse 3. And it says, and he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And I know later on, Senior Pastor, you're going to briefly talk about the, the, what they call the silent years, um, the 400 years between the time of Malachi and the time of uh, John the Baptist. Um, and hopefully, you know, we'll be able to uh, expound on that a little bit more. Um, seeing that the Old Testament provides such a systematic foretelling of the first coming of Christ and seeing that the New Testament presents his actual revelation 
any serious student of the Bible clearly sees that Jesus Christ is the epicenter of history. The epicenter of history. God's plan of redemption was never an afterthought. Although God did not foreordain sin, he did foreknow it. And in foreknowing sin, he prepared for its eradication. Peter wrote that Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. And we'll find that in First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Now the law and the prophets provided the foundation on which God would build his New Testament church in the fullness of time and in a single stroke of divine justice and mercy, Christ came to destroy sin and to provide salvation to all who put their trust in him. And for those that are listening, it's not too late to put your trust in Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, so at this time, I'm going to turn, turn it over to Senior Pastor, Jesus' birth and childhood. Amen. Thank you, Pastor O. And I think that last verse there, our um, last clause sums it up. Christ came to destroy sin and to provide salvation to all who put their trust in him. It's very telling to all those who are listening today and those of us who will carry the message that his coming was to destroy sin and to provide salvation. And salvation comes if you believe and if you trust in him. It's confessing with your lips, believing in your heart, and trusting him that he will do the rest. So that, that, that sums it up, and that sums up the coming of the Messiah. Also, I, I was thinking, Pastor O, that when people die, we do an arbitrary, arbitrary for them. And um, we could make up one to Jesus here, because um, at his death, he came back from the grave and from death so quickly that we didn't even have time to do that. But um, Jesus' birth and childhood. So this is an account that we can give you to the best of our knowledge and ability. And um, verse 21, we start in verse 21 of St. Matthew chapter 1. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And we are all God's people. Although we were born in sin and in iniquity, we are called God's people because he made us from the dust of the earth, breathed into us the breath of life, and we became living souls. All right, so we are God's people now. Through the serpent in the garden drew us away from God, and because of that, we became sinners. But we're all God's people. Now, Isaiah talked about that, prophesied 
of the coming Messiah, the, the birth of the child. And as Isaiah chapter 9, a child is born, said unto us, a child is born, unto us a son is given. And here, Matthew is taking it up, and she shall bring forth a son, past and present, she shall bring forth a son, and his name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And we're going to take up the name Jesus. Now, what we find in this lesson is that there were 400 silence here when nothing happened between the Old Testament book, the last Old Testament book written, and the beginning of the New Testament from Malachi to Matthew. There was 400 years that nothing happened, waiting, and that's why Malachi said that the Lord whom he seeks shall suddenly come to his temple. Right, we're waiting for the Messiah to come, and here's the fulfillment. Um, this time has now ended. The 400 years has passed. Mary, betrothed, are engaged, and it was more than an engagement because if you read the Jewish history of this, that um, she was at the father's house, and the groom would go get his bride on the day, and so on, and they would consummate the marriage and things. So it was more than engagement, really. Engagement is somebody make a promise, man make a promise to a woman, I'm going to marry you. And um, they have a time where they can tell their friends and, and so on and so on. But um, although she was engaged to Joseph, she was still a virgin, meaning that she never had any encounter with any man. Um, but during this period, Joseph discovered that she was pregnant, and this was done through the work of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, being a protective man, and I want every man to listen to this, Joseph, a just and protective man, just and protective man, you must always protect your wife. You must always protect your daughters and your sons. Being a protected man, chose to secretly hide her from public view to preempt the wagging of tongues. Wow. <laughs> the wagging of tongues, both in the church and outside of the church in society, this would happen. And I, I, when I was reading this again last night, Pastor, it jumped out at me. If this happened today, I wonder how would the man react and how would society react. There's no way you could convince that man that it was anything about the Holy Spirit and that she didn't have an encounter with somebody else and get pregnant. There's no way society would accept this. And um, But Joseph being uh, just and protected man chose to secretly either from public view to protect her, to prevent her from the gainsayers. Knowing Joseph needed assurance, and watch this, knowing Joseph needed assurance of the divine nature of Mary's pregnancy, he had questions as well. But here comes God. God sent an angel who appeared to him in a dream 
to inform him that Mary's conception was of the Holy Spirit and he should take her for his wife without fear. God would validate her pregnancy. And in these days, even if an angel appears, some people would not believe that. But thank God for Joseph being a just and a Christian man and a protected man. Observe that the angel announced to Joseph that Mary would give birth to a son and make a notation, would give birth to a son, not his son. Not his son. He had nothing at all to do with it. Some people, some men, regardless of what happened, you're gone. But note at the same time that the angel declared, I don't know if it was the same angel, but the angel declared to Zacchaeus, Zacharias in Luke 1 concerning the birth of John the Baptist. And we know that John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. He came before Christ and he preached the message and we have given you the Christmas highlight all the time that when um, Mary was conceived, she went down to the countryside to see Elizabeth. And now that as they greeted each other, that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost and the baby lived in their womb. But the um, decoration to Elizabeth that she shall bear a son. Now, the word spoken to Joseph was an attestation to the virgin birth of Jesus. Why? Although Zacchaeus was John's biological father, because he had to go to Elizabeth for that to happen, Joseph had no such organic relationship to Mary's unborn child. For the Holy Spirit supernaturally formed Jesus in her womb. So Joseph, remember that? They were just engaged. They had nothing. He didn't go to her yet. He was waiting to consummate the marriage. So he found her to be a child of the Holy Ghost. Um, for the Holy Spirit supernaturally formed Jesus in her womb. Matthew recorded that this was done to fulfill the word spoken by the Lord to Isaiah saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God is with us. Now, note here that the name Jesus in the Greek meant Joshua, which is a combination of Ashia, with the name of God added as a prefix. G. Joshua, shortened to Joshua. Since Oshia means deliverer, G. Joshua, Oshua means God is deliverer, or the over is salvation, which means he's Emmanuel. The old virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth the son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And we need to know that regardless of what we're going to, we have been saying this for the past couple of weeks, that God is with us. He never leaves us alone. He is with us from the beginning, from before the world was created, when we came into existence, when he made us from the dust of the earth, 
blew breath into us and we became a living soul. God has been with us and he will be with us to the end of this world. Therefore, the message in the name Jesus is that he himself shall save his people. He himself shall save his people. Now, this is a mystery. And we are still pondering the mystery of the incarnation is precisely that, a mystery. So don't ask me to explain it. And you don't try to explain it because we can't. It's a mystery. And it takes those who exercise faith in Jesus Christ to believe this. People still question this. Never happen again and will never happen again. I mean, God could do it, but it never happened again after that. This was the only time because heaven had something to do with it. So try not to explain it. It's a mystery. It lies beyond the scope of human understanding (laughs) and therefore lies beyond our ability to explain. But through faith, oh, praise God, we can lay hold on the truth that the virgin birth of Jesus did happen, and in happening, it provided the foundation upon which God has raised the framework of eternal salvation to all who believe on the name Jesus. Let people say this and say that. Do just believe it. Believe the, believe the message. It's not even a story. Believe the message. It's a message. It's a mystery from God. And what he has kept from the wise and prudent he has revealed to the babe and suffering, you and I. From what are the people being saved? Not from a visible warfare, a barbarian, but something far greater from their own sins. A work that has never been possible to anyone before. Thank God for Jesus. Thank God for salvation. We look forward to his second coming. Now, why did he come? What was his purpose on earth? We, we talked about that already, that we all have a purpose. And he was here to do the business of his father. Not his business, but the business of the father. You remember, it was said that um, when it was asked in heaven, who will go die for having fallen race, that there was silence, nobody answered, and the Lord God decided that he would send his son. And he came here to do the business of his father, which is to bring us back to God, to bring salvation to us. Um, Luke 2, we're taking up at verse 46 in Luke 2. And it came to pass that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both here and them, and asking them questions. Now, this was about the age of 12. They had gone down to do business, to pay taxes, as they did when he was born. Praise God, we don't have to journey far to do that, but they had to journey back home to their home state to pay taxes. And what happened here is that after they had done their business and it was time to go back home, that they were traveling, traveling, asking for him. They didn't see him, but they didn't take it for anything. They thought he was with other family members or other friends. All right? So they journeyed, 
But after three days' journey, he couldn't be found. So they returned. They made a decision to return to where they were coming from. And they saw him in the midst of the doctors in the temple, hearing them, asking them questions and answering questions. And he said unto them, to his parents, how is it that you're looking for me? How is it that he sought me? Don't you think that I must be about my father's business? Now, I'm looking at this story or this message. We have no story of Jesus' childhood, save the one before us, as well as a single reference in Mark 6, 3, to him being a carpenter. And in some of the quarters, they call him Joseph the carpenter's son. So we believe that perhaps he was helping his father, who was a carpenter. But we can reasonably assume that his physical and social development were normal for a Jewish boy. Now, note here that he was a sinless child. Very peculiar. Had no girlfriend because um, he was of divine nature and obeying God and had no sin at all. So we know that for sure. Now, um, if this happened, as I was reading this, I thought about this pastor all, and it, this came to me. If this happened in today's world, they would paint him as a gay person. They would call him abnormal, you know, for not having a girlfriend, for not True. involving in sin. And I need young people to take a note of that. Because God is able to keep that which we have committed unto him. You say, oh, I can go through life like this. You don't have to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. God can keep you. God can sustain you until the day. Now, I'm not saying you mustn't talk to people. I'm just saying that you don't have to be involved in sinful act. He was a sinless child. Don't you want to be like Jesus? Don't you sing that all the time? To be like Jesus, all I want is to be like him. He was a sinless child. There is no indication that he displayed miraculous power as a boy. No, none at all. But at the age 33, he started this Christian ministry. Or 30, somewhere thereabouts. However, the absence of sin in his life most certainly contributes to more rapid intellectual and moral growth. All he was concerned about was doing his father's business, and that's what he said to his parents. Verse 41 to 48 recounts his journey with his parents to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. Jesus, at only 12, lingered down in the city after his parents had departed from home. Supposing him to be with King Folks, her friend Joseph and Mary initially thought little of his absence. After day's journey, they became concerned and began a thorough search, no doubt worrying that some mischief had befallen him. In desperation, they returned to Jerusalem, hoping to find him safe and perhaps in the security of a caring family. Now, regardless of what Joseph and Mary expected to find when they returned to Jerusalem, 
what they actually encountered was amazing. And remember that the Bible says that Mary kept all these things that was happening and she pondered them in her heart. What child is this? Special child. Not like anybody else, but different. They were astonished to hear Jesus discussing deep truth with the doctors of law at age 12 while displaying incredible understanding and wisdom especially for a 12-year-old boy. This seemed to be the defining moment when Jesus' boyhood ended and a new day began. He wondered why his parents were not aware that he had to be about his Heavenly Father's business. He offered no apology for his absence, but indicated that he was first answerable to his Father in heaven which we could hear some of our young folks saying that. I must be about my father's business, he repeated some years later when he spoke to his disciples in John 9, 4. He said, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day for the night cometh when no man can work. When we find Christ, we always find him doing his father's work. When we find Christ, when we read about him, even if he goes down to a party, if he goes down to a wedding, it was all about doing his father's work. We, we, we find so much to do and very little in doing our father's work. And that's what we were called to do, is to work for him. I must work while it is day for the night cometh when no man can work. I want us to take this seriously. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day for the night cometh. Night we know that we are supposed to go to sleep. You know, when it's over, it's going to be over. So we must work for him now, calling on all of us, as I did last week, to find some work. There's so much work in the vineyard to be done. And we cannot sit down and do nothing. We are so much educated now technology-wise that we don't even have to go in person. We can tweet. We can tweet. We can text. We can do various things. Just tell somebody about Jesus. That's all he asks you to do. Tell somebody that Jesus saved. Tell somebody that they need a Savior. In times like these, we need a Savior. Now we find in Luke 2, 51 to 52, the development of the Son. And the Bible says in verse 51, Luke says, He went down with them and came to Nazareth, Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and man. Uh, Mary had not forgotten how she had conceived Jesus by the Holy Spirit. She knew his birth occurred while she was still a virgin. How could she not now deeply contemplate his life as developing beyond all that was earthly and natural? 
she may not have fully understood the far-reaching implication of her child's life, but she kept these things in her heart and surely believing God's plan was unfolding before her eyes. She did not try to answer or defend the gainsayers. She did not try to do anything to explain. She pondered all of these things in her mind. Sometimes it's better not to talk. Sometimes it's better to just keep everything and ponder them and talk to the Lord. Her son, as she carefully watched her son, grow in wisdom and understanding, gain in favor with his heavenly father and with the people around him. And in spite of all of that, they still crucify him. Jesus' remarkable development, social, emotional, intellectual, and moral, was certainly visible to all who knew him. Speaking of Jesus, John the Baptist announced when he was baptizing and he saw Jesus coming and Jesus came to him and said, baptize me now. And John said, not so. I need to be baptized of you and come out to me. And as he baptized them, the heavens were open. The voice descended in the form of a dove saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And when John saw him again, another day he was baptizing, he saw Jesus coming. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which take away the sins of the world. And he says, I must decrease, but he must increase. About two decades later, his development as a perfect man would lead him to the most defining moment in history, the crucifixion of the cross. The crucify Christ at the cross. And, um, you know, we must do the business of the Father. We must do the business of the Father. We must decrease so that he can increase in us. And that's what we're called upon to do today. We're called upon to call on the name of the Lord, to spread the gospel to everyone. May we develop in Christ. May our wisdom increase. May we, as children of God, be strong, become strong preachers, strong, beautiful singers. Whatever you're called to do in the ministry, he expects you to spread the gospel. All right, Pastor O, can you talk about Jesus' earthly ministry? John the Baptist and the Anointed. Amen. Thank you, Senior Pastor. Um, Jesus's earthly ministry was um, quite interesting. I don't think, of course, in my recent memory, I I really don't think there's anybody that com- can compare to the impact that he had in three and a half years. He Amen. changed the course of history. He changed lives. He healed people. Um, and like I said, I, you know, within recent history or recent memory, I, I really don't know if anybody could really compare um, to what Jesus did in those three and a half years. Um, it was remarkable. And as we look briefly at 
his earthly ministry. We find that uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 21 and 22 says, Now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him, and uh, and a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved son, in thee I am well pleased. Now he was baptized by John the Baptist, and, and just give a, a, a brief history here. Many came to John for baptism, and initially... John the Baptist refused to baptize Jesus. Now, what is baptism? Um, and that, that's something that people kind of get confused at because when they go to different churches, people have different ways of doing things. Um, there is no formula or no way of doing it. We believe in, in absolute submersion. Um, and in looking at this article, what is baptism, its meaning and importance in Christianity, it actually gives the reason why we ought to be baptized. And this is by Dr. Ray Pritchard. You'll find it on Christianity.com. And it says, when we enter the waters of baptism, we are proclaiming the gospel message. Amen. Let me say that again. When we enter the waters of baptism, we are proclaiming the gospel message. Jesus died for our sins. Then he was buried and lives again. By joining in baptism, we are identifying ourselves with him. Romans 6 verse 4 says, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. We're now dead to the power of sin, being raised up out of the water expresses our new life in Christ and our union with him. So it's really a public testimony that now I am going to follow Christ and his teachings. Um, it's, a, it's kind of a public affirmation of the, the, you know, the affirmation of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We are now saying, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe he came. I believe he died. I believe he rose. And now I am going to follow him and make him Lord and Savior of my life. So it's very important. Baptism is not just something for a show. Um, no, it's, it's a declaration that we are following Jesus Christ and we have made him Lord of our life. Now, initially, as I said, uh, John the Baptist refused to baptize Jesus because the Son of God needed no repentance. Amen. He saw himself as a most unworthy agent of such an act. This is John the Baptist. Still, Jesus, as an act of submission and to fulfill all righteousness, insisted that John baptize him in water. This was an act of humility on the side of Jesus Christ. Jesus showed humility, and so we ought to as well show humility and submission to the things of God. Uh, the accompanying 
the accompanying appearance of the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove and the Father's declaration of Jesus as his well-pleasing Son signified that Jesus' human nature was supernaturally empowered as God's instrument. And so it is with us. As Jesus' human nature was supernaturally empowered, we too can be empowered supernaturally. I know there are some people that think that's kind of crazy, but it's not. Each and every one of us can be empowered supernaturally. God can use us through the act of the Holy Spirit. God can use us to do wonderful things uh, magnificent, magnificent, you know, uh, magnificent things um, for his kingdom. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not because, you know, we are uh, worthy, because we are not, but for whatever reason. Look at Mary. You know, we may think that Mary was insignificant. She was a teenager, and the Holy Spirit uh, impregnated her so that she could bring about someone great who would change the world. Amen. And this is something that is important. We need to understand that even though we may be in our little corner doing our, our thing, so to speak, the Holy Spirit can empower us to do something wonderful and magnificent and great, you know, uh, for his kingdom for his glory. The Holy Spirit who empowered Jesus to do good and mighty works and overcome temptations in the wilderness is the same spirit who empowers his followers today. The resources of heaven, I want you to listen to this, the resources of heaven that were available to Jesus as he embarked on his earthly ministry are also available to us as we follow him. Amen. Now, uh, Luke 4, we're going to actually read verses 18 through 21, talks about Jesus' declaration of his calling. Uh, verse 18 begins, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he began to say unto them, verse 21, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Now, this is a very significant uh, moment in scripture. Uh, following Jesus' baptism and temptation in the wilderness, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and began teaching in the Jewish synagogues. Arriving in Nazareth, he pursued his customary practice of attending synagogue on the Sabbath. That was very significant. It's, a, it's an example of the importance of regularly attending public worship, an Amen. example of the importance of sharing in public worship when given the opportunity, and oftentimes we find excuses. I mean, we even find excuses just to call into this line, let alone um, to come to a gathering of like-minded believers, you know, to worship and to fellowship. 
Uh, we find so many excuses. But here Jesus laid out the example for us. Uh, he did not forsake the assembling of the saints. Uh, it was important for him. He found it his duty and responsibility to worship when given the opportunity. Interestingly, synagogue services featured considerably more flexibility in individuals speaking up than what most people are familiar with in North American churches today. For example, using young men as readers and calling upon a guest to exhort the Bible was common practice. And here, you know, we, we, we close our mouths and, and we hide from, from speaking about the goodness of the Lord, but it was not so during Jesus' time. It was important for young men to read the scriptures. It was important for people to speak, to speak about the scriptures and to share, you know, in, in expounding and exhorting the scriptures. Um, on this day, as Jesus stood to read, the synagogue minister handed him the scroll of Isaiah after reading the portion of prophecy that referred to um, the mission of the Messiah. He returned the copy to the minister, sat down, and began expounding Isaiah's words. And, and this was, you know, this was strange to those that were there. He forthrightly declared that this prophecy referred to him by announcing, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Isaiah's reference to the anointing of the Spirit upon the one sent to heal the suffering, to set captives free, to deliver the oppressed, and to proclaim restoration is about God's eternal purpose that would find its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus' pursuit of his calling is found in Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 37, and, and Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. And we're going to take a few excerpts um, from those two chapters. Um, chapter 4, verse 36 says, And they were all amazed and spake among themselves, saying, What a word is this? For with authority and power he commandeth the unclean spirits, and they came out. Chapter 5, verse 23 through 25 says whether, well, yeah, 23 to 25 says whether it is easier to say, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, rise up and walk. But what, but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power upon earth to forgive sins. He said unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto mm. thee, Arise, and take up thy couch, and go into thine house. And immediately he rose up before them, and took up that whereon he lay, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And this is an example to us again here, that when God does something for you, you ought to glorify him. When he has brought you out of something, when he has delivered you from something, when he has healed you from a disease or an illness or a sickness, you ought to glorify God. It's important for, for you to do that. Uh, following the proclamation that his coming fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy, Jesus came to Capernaum and taught on the Sabbaths. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power 
doesn't necessarily mean that he was shouting. It was just talking that it was just basically mean, meant that his words meant something. They held meat. Um, they weren't just talking. They weren't just, you know, Jesus was just not saying for saying sake. Whatever he said meant something to the hearers. And I pray that, you know, ministers and, and those that, that are in leadership position, and, and we as pastors as well, I hope that whatever we say means something, that it's powerful, that it has meat, that it feeds you. Um, and I pray that it changes your life. Every time when we speak, I pray that it changes your life. His hearers were amazed because he didn't teach as the scribes and Pharisees did. When Jesus silenced a demon that possessed a certain man and commanded the unclean spirit to come out, the demon had no alternative but to obey. Such a manifestation of God's supremacy was unheard of and propelled the person and ministry of Christ to the forefront of many conversations. And the report about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. People started talking based on what they saw, based on their experiences. They started talking. There was chatter. They were talking amongst themselves because this was an exciting time. This was on an unusual person coming in their midst, healing people and, and talking differently from the scribes and the Pharisees. In Luke chapter 5, verse 17 through 25, Jesus' teaching was interrupted by men bringing a paralyzed friend, and we all know the story, lowering him from the housetop in order to get him as close to the master as possible. Immediately, Jesus declared his sins forgiven, enraging the scribes and Pharisees in the process. You know, when I look at this, and it, it, when it talks about the scribes and the Pharisees, or the Sadducees and the Pharisees, um, I often think that sometimes we as ministers are our worst enemies. When somebody mm -hmm. speaks differently, when somebody preaches differently, when somebody says things in a different way, we often scorn them and make fun of them because they don't speak the way we do. They don't talk the way we do. They don't maybe speak perfect English. They may speak in a, you know, in a different way that is probably more appealing to the masses. But because they speak in a certain way, then we, you know, we ridicule them instead of celebrating the, the, the way God is speaking and the way the Holy Spirit is using them. And that's something we have to be very careful of as Christians as well. We often you know, give the illustration of, of God being able to, to save the drug dealer or you know, to save the prostitute or to save you know, someone um, with lower means, so to speak, and fix them up, bring them into the congregation. And their words mean so much more because they have experienced a transformation that may not be likened onto wars. You know, they've been in the streets. They've been in places that we don't dare go. And God cleaned them up and bring them in, and now they have a powerful testimony. We should celebrate that because Amen. that's the transforming power of salvation. We should really celebrate those who 
don't necessarily speak the way we do, but have uh, a seat at the table and they can, um, you know, they can speak of God's goodness and God's mercy and grace. So immediately Jesus declared his sins forgiven, enraging the scribes and Pharisees in the process and prompting them to identify Jesus as a blasphemer. Discerning their thoughts, Jesus asked whether it was easier to forgive sins or to heal a sick body. To prove his power to forgive sins, he immediately healed the man sick of palsy and commanded him to take up his bed and return home. Miracles that flowed from the hands of God's son affirmed his calling, testified of his sovereignty, and announced his complete authority over Satan's wicked empire. For us to know that disturbing demonic forces, agonizing physical infirmities, and tormenting sins are subject to a master's authority, power, and forgiveness strengthens our faith in Jesus in our times of temptation and tribulation. And I want to speak to the hearers very quickly and say, when God calls you, walk in it. When God calls you, walk in it. Because you don't know what the Holy Spirit is trying to do through you in order to change someone else's life. So when God calls you, walk in it. It, it. At times it will be terrifying. At times you're going to feel unprepared and unworthy. But if God has called you, walk in the calling that he has called you to. All right. Um, Jesus' death and resurrection, Senior Pastor. Amen. Thank God for that. And um, Jesus' death and resurrection. Now if we had just said Jesus' death, now that would be a problem. But not only are we going to deal with that, which is a great time in Christendom, that he died for our sins, as he said he came to do, but that also he was resurrected. Victory. Victory over sin, death, and the grave. And um, I wondered why would they crucify a man like that? Why? Because they crucified him because he said, one of the things that they said, that he said he was the son of God. And yes, he was, because God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Now, shouldn't they celebrate that? No. But the same religious leaders, and boy, we, we see it happening. We've got to be careful of those who we see some people, they accept wrong for right, and um, they see sin around them, and they, just like they, when the um, gentleman there, the Good Samaritan, the story of the Good Samaritan, how that this gentleman suffered agony and um, because they ambushed him, took everything away from him. And the, the priest and the Levites, they passed over on the other side and took the Good Samaritan. Why would they really crucify a man like that? 
wouldn't you like for him to be around at this time with all the COVID-19 going on that he could heal? But can I tell us that he has given us that power? Our faith needs to reach in Jesus Christ because all the resources of heaven that were available to Jesus is available to us today as we follow him. Why did they crucify him? When he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because God has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted and to preach deliverance to the captive and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. He came to minister to every situation and to help everybody that had need. And yet they crucified him because death and resurrection is um, embodied in this. The crucifixion, which was one of the most cruel form of death. We pick up from St. John chapter 19, 16 to 18 is the reading, and 28 to 30, we pick up from verse 17. And he, Jesus, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Galgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him on either side one and Jesus in the midst. Three crosses. Three crosses were there. Jesus in the middle, one chief on the left, one on the right. Now, let's see what's happening here. The unparalleled earthly ministry of Jesus, filled with profound teaching and incredible miracles, engendered much anguish and animosity among the Jewish religious elite. The scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees had challenged him at every turn and had stubbornly refused to accept his divine authority, harshly declaring him an enemy of God or a blasphemer. The scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees. And we, we are still challenged today as we call upon the name of the Lord. Now, we find their deep-seated prejudice against anyone who would openly oppose their convoluted interpretation of the law. Brought them to the breaking point in their dealing with Jesus. They couldn't stand him at all. They insisted on his arrest. They didn't like his preaching. They didn't like himself calling himself the Son of God. Although he read the scripture and he said, today all of this is fulfilling your ear. That enraged them even more. So they insisted on his, on his arrest and trial for supposedly, supposedly trying to destroy the law for bypassing religious tradition. <laughs> yes, you ever hear people say, and a Sodom used to do it back then? You ever hear people say, about that, where people tell me, oh, they mustn't sing them song, they must sing them kind of song here. He said away with tradition. He didn't come like what they used to do or, you know, act the way or teach the way they used to teach. So they really, really was out to destroy him. 
And um, they equated him with God. They said, for daring to forgive sin, which equated him with God. But we know in the beginning was God, and the Word was God, and the Word became God, and the Word became flesh and dwell among us. Jesus came in flesh so that we could accept God. So they went after him. Following his illegal partial trial, the utter contempt of his distractors reached a fever pitch as they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Put him away! We don't want him at all. They even went on to say, His blood be on us and our children, children. So perhaps we are suffering the consequence of that. And look what they did. When they hung him on the cross, they said, I'll crucify him away with him. Give us Barabbas. Give us the thief. Give us the whole guy, the sinful guy, and do away with the righteous guy. Following the scourging and mocking of Jesus, Pilate delivered him to be crucified. And we'll take this up on Easter, so we're not going to go through all the scenarios about that. But arriving at Calgota, the soldiers crucified Jesus between two thieves, which was the ultimate humiliation, because such an act classified Jesus as the chief of criminals. They classified him as the chief of criminals. And what did he do until now? They can't do it. For saying that he said that he's the son of God, for insisting that he came here to do his father's business, and that was the charge they brought against him and accepted it and crucified him between two thieves. Look what they did to the master. But in the midst of that, while they are saying he's not God, Pilate wrote an inscription on the cross in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Oh, my Lord. That was significant. Although Pilate gave him to be crucified, he insisted that he was going to write Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And somebody said, no, don't write it like that. He said, what I've written, I have written. Although his action was probably an act of revenge, for what was done to the Jewish people. It was perhaps an act of revenge for that. This act served God's purpose in publicly announcing in the words of the Roman governor that Jesus was truly the king of the Jews. And remember that when he was crucified, when heaven sent lightning and thunder and the place went into darkness, and somebody said truly, this was the Son of God. In death, they validate him as the Son of God, as the King of the Jews. Not only the King of the Jews, but he's our King, because we are not Jewish. But he's our King, and he's our Lord as well. The crucifixion of Jesus perfectly fulfilled the ancient prophecies from the Old Testament. Jesus could have resisted. Yes, he could. He could have spoken up in his own behalf. He could have called legions of angels to come to his rescue. But he did not. Why? For the sake of sinful humankind. 
for you and I. He bore the agony. He bore the reproach. He bore the shame. And he went to the cross. In his final moment, Jesus took the proffered vinegar. He drank the vinegar and declared, It is finished. Oh, praise God. It is finished. Man's redemption. I came here to do what I was sent to do, and I have done it. I've paid the price with my death. I've paid the price by shedding blood. I've paid the price by them nailing my hands and my feet. I paid the price by drinking vinegar and gall. I paid the price by them running a spear through my side. Ah, yes, but I can declare now, it is finished. You can be saved. You don't have to go to sin's punishment. You don't have to go to the guilt of sin. But I've done it so that you can find a way back to God. Having made such a declaration, he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Verse 30. Christ's crucifixion was unlike any execution that took place before or after him. As similar as all such crucifixion may have seemed to the Roman soldiers and to the Jewish religious community, there was one notable difference, and we find that difference in the Old Testament words, atonement. Atonement. And in New Testament corresponding word, propitiation. Atonement has to do with its suffering and the death of Christ as the Lamb of God. Death and suffering in our place. The last three words in Galatians 2.20, himself, he gave himself for me, himself for me, which defines atonement and embrace the mystery of the ages. Now, not only did they, they crucify him, but was he going to be left up there for the crows to eat his body? Was he going to be left up there so that, you know, his body could decay? No. Verse John nineteen thirty-eight to 40 declares that after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, private disciple, but secretly for fear of the Jews, they sought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him consent, gave him leave. He came, therefore, took the body of Jesus, and Nicodemus also came with him, which at the first came to Jesus by night. Remember Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about an hundred pound weight, which was about the same ointment that Mary and the other Mary took when they went to see the sepulchre. Then took they the body of Jesus, wound it in linen clothes, wrapped it in linen clothes with the spices as the man of the Jews is to bury. Now, make a note here. During the arrest and trial of Jesus, and this is very important, his 12 disciples fled or followed him afar off. Simon Peter even denied three times that he knew him. Now after his death, two of his secret followers, Joseph and Nicodemus, prepared the body of Jesus for burial. His own people were not there, his own disciples, whom he taught, whom he fed with fish and bread, whom he 
They saw him work miracles, whom he saved when there was a storm on the sea. They left Jesus. They fled. Or some followed afar off, not wanting anything to do with him at all. But God always has somebody. Always have somebody. Nothing, nothing new under the sun. They were members of the Sanhedrin, who um, was the one who um, tried them, and they feared the reaction of the Jews towards them if they were discovered as believers in Jesus. Yet their love for Christ prompted them to fight back their fears, seek the body of Jesus, anoint him for burial, and place him in a never-before-used sepulcher nearby. Jesus don't want anything that is used. <laughs> Amen. The message is that Jesus came for all people, came to die for all people, regardless of color, race, or creed. Whether you're a fisherman, tax collector, members of the Jewish hierarchy, the irony is that 12 who had been with him for three years or more Learning and ministering had no part in his burial, while two members of the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin buried him with the utmost dignity. Doesn't this assure us that God accepts all who come to him, regardless of who you are? Whether you might be red or dread or bald regardless of who you are, school teacher, Governor, President, Prime Minister, Street Cleaner, regardless of what you do, regardless of where you come from, regardless of your educational background, regardless of your financial standing, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And if we come to him, he will in no wise cast out. All who comes to him, he will have mercy and he will have pardon. So they buried him. And what happened afterwards? Tell us, Pastor O, about the empty tomb. It was an empty tomb. <laughs> and uh, we find in John chapter 20, verses 1, it says, the first day of the week, cometh Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark unto the sepulchre and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulchre. Can you imagine the um, amazement or the worry and the astonishment that Mary went through? And in verse 18, said Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. So let's kind of look really quickly as we're wrapping up um, the events of Mary Magdalene. It was early in the morning of of the resurrection. Uh, Mary Magdalene came to anoint the body of Jesus 
with traditional ointments and, and spices. Um, other women also came to the tomb, to the tomb. Um, these loyal women were among the last to leave the cross and the first to come to the tomb. Now, when Mary arrived at the burial site, she discovered the stone rolled away, as we said earlier. Uh, breathlessly, she ran to, to tell Peter and John of her discovery. Um, the disciples hurried to the tomb and found it as Mary had described. Um, each returned to his home to ponder the meaning of it all. Now Mary, remaining after the departure of Peter and John, stood outside the tomb weeping. Once again, she looked inside, um, this time seeing two angels, one seated at the head and the other at the feet of where the body of Jesus had lain. As she explained to the angels the reason of her weeping, she turned and saw Jesus, but supposing to be the gardener. When he called Mary, she recognized him as master. As she reached out to touch him, he refused her, saying, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father, and your father, and to my God, and your God. In obedience to Jesus, in obedience to Jesus, I want us to underline that. In obedience to Jesus, Mary went to tell the disciples that she had seen the Lord. That same evening, as the disciples assembled in a private room for fear of the Jews, Jesus appeared to them and declared, Peace be unto you. And the reason why I said underline in obedience to Jesus, notice what happened. Mary went to tell the disciples that she had seen the Lord. Right? That says to me that when I obey him, good things happen. Amen. When I obey him, I'm able to see what he's trying to make manifest in my life. Good things happen when you obey Jesus. Good things happen when you obey Jesus. The end result is always going to be to glorify him. The end Amen. result is always going to be to glorify him. Like showing them his hands, showing the disciples his hands and side as proof of his resurrection. He breathed on them, saying, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Man, that was an Acts 2 in action. If, you're not, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go and read Acts chapter 2. That's Acts chapter 2 in action. The resurrection of Jesus validated his ministry and crucifixion. Had the resurrection not happened, then our preaching and our faith mean nothing. Yeah. It is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ that our hope is established, the spiritual hope that anticipates the return of our Savior and the resurrection of believers. Now, what does this all mean to us? What does this all mean to us? The life, ministry, death, and resurrection, what does that mean to us? It did not happen secretly but publicly. Consequently, we have a good record of all these events in the earthly life of the Son of God. And remember, it was just a short span of three and a half years. Christ preached the gospel of the kingdom, died to identify with us and to meet the demands of the law, 
and establish all that he taught and did by his victory over the grave. Because of this one solitary life, the good news of eternal salvation has come to the world. That whoever believes in him, as John 3.16 says, should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's important for us to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And this says to us as well that our life must be significant if we allow Jesus, if we allow God to use us for his glory then we can make an impact in the world. That's important for us to understand. We can make an impact in the world if we allow God to use us. And I, I hope and I pray that each and every one that is listening will grab a hold of Jesus and grab a hold of his teachings and look at his life and seek to pattern your life after the life of Jesus. And for those who don't know him, come to know him, accept him as Lord and Savior of your life. We're going to ask Senior Pastor to pray for you. If you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, it's one of the biggest mistakes you will ever make in your life, to not allow him into your heart. Senior Pastor, if you can pray uh, that God will have mercy on those that are hearing today. Bow your heads, everybody. Believe in your heart today. Confess with your lips that he is Lord, Savior, and Lord. Father, we come to you close up another service on this Sunday morning that we normally gather to worship. We have declared that you are Lord, that you are Savior. Thank you for coming through the womb of the woman. Thank you, Lord, for your life and your testimony. Thank you for going to the cross, taking all our sins and nailing them to the cross. And every nail that they drove in your hands and your feet was for our sins that you nailed to the cross. And every blood that dropped from your side was, O oh God, that we might have a right relationship with you. We admit this morning that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Then that's why you came. That's why you died. That's why you were resurrected. Oh God, that we can put off the old man and be resurrected anew from death to life. We praise you this morning. We thank you as we read about all that you went through. How those who were supposed to help us to go to heaven, those who were supposed to help us to find a way to you, 
how they hated you, how they disdained you, and how they crucified you. Oh God, help us today that we will learn from that, that we will not crucify you and you. But we pray, God, that in our hearts today, we will rejoice and we will be thankful to you for all the benefits that we have received, that we as Gentiles have been engrafted in. Oh God, we thank thee today for your love, that you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son. And oh God, you want us to come to see you. Help us, Lord, that we will do everything we can, those of us who are saved, that we will not sit idle by, that we will not be quiet, but we will spread the good news of salvation, taking somebody else with us to heaven. Could be a family member, could be a friend, could be somebody in the community, could be somebody who don't believe in you. But, oh God, as you are empowered, as you said, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon you because you have been anointed to preach the gospel to the poor. You have been sent to heal the brokenhearted, to bring deliverance to the captive and recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised. There are a lot of bruised people around today, but help us, Lord that we will help to set them at liberty. Help us to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Oh God, we pray that we will not be weighed in the balances and found wanting. But oh God, we pray today, small and great, young and old, and middle aged, that all of us, Lord, will be involved in the spreading of the gospel to be loyal and faithful to your church, the church, the bride of Christ that you're coming back for. We look forward, Lord. We look forward to that time. We live and reign with you where this mortal will put on immortality. Oh, God, and this corruptible will put on incorruption. Lord, we bless you this morning and we praise your name. Bless all of us today, those who are involved, in the gospel message, we pray that you will bless us. And whatever era of ministry we have been called upon, we pray for that same anointing to be upon us. We thank thee and we praise your name. And for those who are not saved today, once again, I pray that salvation, salvation will be extended to them. In the name of Jesus, we thank thee and we praise thee forever and ever. Amen and amen.